up. Boys will be boys. Boys don't cry. Be a man. Man up. Man up. Man up. Bros before hoes. Bros before hoes. Be strong like be a strong man. Be strong like a man. Be what women be want. Be what women want. Be what a woman wants. Be a provider. Be a provider. Bringing home the bacon. A lone wolf. A lone wolf. The strong, silent type. Strong, strong enough, enough for strong a man. Strong enough for a man. You smell, like, like, a man. Man. You smell yeah. like a man. You run, throw, hit, play like a girl. You're listening to Masculinity Redefined. An open and honest discussion with a goal to increase awareness and change the narrative of the harmful gender behaviors known as toxic masculinity. Hello, my name is Jason Carubia, and welcome to our live podcast and roundtable discussion. I'll be your moderator as we examine the social justice issue known as toxic masculinity. Today, I'm joined by a diverse and insightful panel of guests who intend to deepen the understanding and offer opportunities for changing during our uncertain times. First up is Ben Kroll, uh, he, a Southern Connecticut State University senior communication major with an advertising and promotions concentration and a political science minor. Ben is the co-chair of the YDSA, that's the Young Democratic Socialists of America, and captain of the men's rugby team. Next, we have Brady Agovino, a Southern Connecticut State University Honors College senior with a concentration in advertising and promotions. And the podcast welcomes again, Sammy J, a social justice warrior and social media advocate for the LGBTQ community. Finally, we are joined by Dr. Janani Umamaheshwar, an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology here at Southern Connecticut State University. Her published research and teaching methods include criminology, gender, punishment, the life course, and qualitative research methods. Uh, thank you all again for bringing your unique perspectives to our forum. Uh, and I'd like to start today's discussion by acknowledging that we're all in this form of isolation. We're practicing social distancing. And because of the recent COVID-19 worldwide pandemic, this presents us with a unique challenge of getting our message out despite not being able to speak to an in-person audience. And thankfully, because of technologies of social media, podcasting, video conferencing, we're able to reach out to possibly a larger group than we could in an, an lecture hall. And um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who's uh, here as well, um, our, our, our fellow classmates, um, anyone on social media, on our Twitter and uh, our Instagram feed. Feel free to submit any questions that you have to us to those feeds, uh, the Twitter feed and the Instagram feed. Um, we are taking those questions and we'll be doing Q&A later on in the live podcast session. Um, however, for many people, communicating is not so simple. So communication climates with toxic behaviors may be unavoidable during social distancing. Our new normal, us being at home, also creates these barriers, uh, removing how traditional communication channels that monitor and protect people from harm, um, give them an area of grave concern, and specifically with domestic violence. Um, in fact, according to John Hopkins University of Medicine, I'm just going to quote their article here because it's perfect. Um, Outbreaks of domestic violence or addictive behaviors occur in times of distress. Indeed, there are already reports of spikes in child abuse and domestic violence, which means families stuck at home already face immediate physical danger. Abuse and violence also have a long run downstream effects on health, education and productivity. Moreover, the very institutions designed to protect victims of abuse and violence that are the courts, uh, social service agencies, and law enforcements, uh, they themselves are shutting down or cutting back while they struggle to determine how to implement our new normal social distancing. 
And if anyone wants any more information on this study, uh, feel free to check out our website. That's www.masculinityredefined.info and our social media stream. We'll be sharing the links to that study. Um, and without further ado, I'd just like to uh, start off with Dr. Umama Heshwar. Thank you again for joining us. Um, and I'd like to begin with your ex expertise. Um, first question, if you could, uh, what increases of abuses and behaviors are we, are we seeing? Like what, what type of abuses and what are we expecting during these difficult times? Yeah, so I think you mentioned that uh, domestic violence is one that is really escalating. It's causing a lot of alarm for advocates and scholars alike. Uh, the data that I have seen suggests that um, some cities are seeing a spike. Um, overall, crime has dropped across cities because we are in a, in a social quarantine situation where people aren't out. Uh, but even in cities that haven't seen an increase in domestic violence, uh, we have seen a smaller decrease in domestic violence compared to other crimes. And perhaps the most alarming thing is that uh, we have not seen a drop in the most serious uh, forms of domestic violence. So, so the things like murder, things like aggravated assault. We are not seeing the kind of declines in those forms of crimes that we're seeing in, uh, um, in, in other forms. Uh, that's alarming. Uh, we're there, you know, a sort of real time information coming out is suggesting that um, uh, abusive partners are actually weaponizing coronavirus in their relationships and uh, using that as a way to advance their abuse. Uh, so for instance, they're saying, um, you know, I don't want to, uh, I don't want you to report it to the police because then I'll have to go to jail and look at what coronavirus is going to look like in jail, kind of making um, survivors of domestic violence feel guilty about involving law enforcement. And then you have that extra layer where even once law enforcement gets involved, there's only so much they can do right now. Uh, because as we're speaking, there's, uh, I think, a reasonable push to decarcerate, to try and get people out of jails and prisons. Uh, because coronavirus is running rampant over there and it's so dangerous in, in those confined settings. Uh, but unfortunately, this can be exploited, this feature of the situation, it can be exploited by abusive partners um, who are not going to jail. And if they are going to jail, go, coming in and out before um, survivors have a chance to put, in, to get, put into place a safety plan. Uh, so for instance, even when law enforcement is getting involved, they're going to jail maybe just for a few hours and then coming right back out. Uh, before partners have had a chance to get out of that situation. Uh, and furthermore, the people who were supporting um, women in particular who were in these domestic violence situations, uh, they, aren't there, they aren't available to them anymore. So uh, advocates are really trying to say, we should probably try and start looking for alternatives to our conventional social support agencies. Uh, so perhaps like a grocery store or a pharmacy can be turned into a hub where um, people who are experiencing domestic violence can go and connect with other people and uh, some sort of assistance. So we're seeing that element of it. On the other side, we're seeing prisons are becoming a hotbed for coronavirus. There are some prisons where up to 70% of the people who are incarcerated have tested positive. Um, so prison is already a very, very volatile situation. In my own research, when I've talked to these, the smallest thing can set them off because it's such a tense, such a confined um, arena. And so right now, what many criminologists and penologists are worried about is what is what is happening behind the walls? What does it look like? Um, you know, when you when you add fear onto an already kind of emotionally tense situation where hypermasculinity and 
um, aggression is can be performed at the drop of a hat, what does that look like? Uh, so we're worried about upticks in violence in prisons. We're worried about just mortality. We've got so many aging prisoners, men and women, especially men, because so many were incarcerated for nonviolent crimes when they were younger. Um, so we're seeing all of that in addition to some of the things that I'm sure my fellow panelists will be talking about, where men are just uh, afraid to talk. Um, they're afraid to deal with their mental health issues. Um, they're taking social distancing less seriously because it's seen as um, sort of weak and uh, and fear, fearful to to agree and accept that this is a danger to themselves and their other and other people around them. So. We're expecting an uptick in all sorts of problematic behaviors that are associated with gender. And then our government is responding in a very classically hyper-masculine way. Uh, ours and others, you know, waging a war, using terminology like war, uh, prioritizing things like the economy over welfare families. Uh, these are all classic masculine concerns, um, and they're not necessarily the ones that we should be thinking about if we're to get ourselves out of the situation as, as intact as possible. You, you used that word a little bit, and we've talked about a little bit in our podcast earlier, that word hypermasculinity. Could you give us just an example of what those types of behaviors are, just for people who are joining new to the podcast series, um, what those types of behaviors that would be looked at and, and could be a problem in, in communication? Of course. So um, hypermasculinity typically is uh, considered this exaggeration of the classic traits that we associate with masculinity. So in a situation where men are put in a uh, are, are kind of expected to confront the fact that they are not masculine in the conventional sense, so either they have race disadvantage or they have class disadvantage or they're incarcerated. Um, you know, anything that kind of uh, deviates from that traditional cisgender, heterosexual, white, middle-class male ideal, uh, they respond to it by overcompensating those traits that they associate with masculinity, such as aggression, a domination, competition. And this is, uh, this is particularly sharp in the prison setting, uh, which is a, an institution where men are put together in close uh, proximity and expected to compete with one another to establish their place in a hierarchy. So how do they do that? They're kind of they're, they're emasculated by being incarcerated, by not being allowed to provide for their families, by uh, having their pre-prison identities kind of stripped down. Uh, so they respond to it by behaving very aggressively, very uh, sort of competitively. And it can be a really tense, scary situation in prisons. Let's pass that around to the group, because I know I know we're all socially distant right now, but we're still experiencing people in the world around us. Um, you know, where are we experiencing those hyper masculine behaviors, those those dominance, aggression, those behaviors? I noticed, Brady, you're wearing your gamer headset. Do you do you game frequently, for example? Like, is that something that you experience um, gaming wise? Uh, yes, actually. Matter of fact, uh, it is. I, I don't get the chance to, to game that often, but when I, when I do, um, I would say that, uh, in terms of, especially with the coronavirus, uh, most men that I am playing, playing video games with, uh, joke about it and, uh, you know, kind of, kind of throw it around as if it's like a joke and it's something not to take seriously and something not to be, uh, afraid of. How about yourself, Ben? Um, so, well, what I thought about when I was thinking about the context of um, domestic violence and uptick in crime, um, the first thing I thought of was that in my experience with toxic masculinity and people I know who are often hyper-masculine, um, it often comes from a place of uh, insecurity 
And so I, I feel that when you're alone at your, at your home and you're forced to confront your own kind of um, emotional shortcomings, um, especially when you're in a stressful situation, uh, I could see that um, violence being a reaction to your own internal um, struggles. And uh, I think that's probably contributing to the uptick as well. In addition to um, the reality of the situation for people uh, who are in marginalized communities that might be living in close proximity, not even prisons themselves, but at home, they live with other people, they share a room, whatever. If you, if you never have a moment alone, um, that's going to weigh on you, especially if you're not comfortable um, with your own social abilities. Absolutely. And in adding to that, you know, there's that other side of what happens when we're under stress. Um, there is those addictive behaviors that people have that they seem to go to. Um, and that, is a it's as the art as the study pointed out um could lead people down a downward spiral um and people do need to be aware of of course there there are still uh, people that people can talk places that people can talk to if they if they do feel um depressed if they do feel like they're in harm there there may be some difficulty but but a lot of the outlets are still there and hopefully we'll be sharing a few of those on our website as well um if anyone needs to have uh need, needs to reach out um there are people there that will listen and help um and sam i know you're all over uh, Instagram, uh, and, and you see uh, everything basically on the internet. Um, I wish I had the social media footprint that you did. Um, tell me about what you've experienced in terms of, of, of negativity, um, in, and hypermasculine behaviors. Um, there's something that Dr. Uma, Uma Maheshwar had mentioned in regard to people being stripped of their masculinity in the conventional sense. Mm -hmm. And um, if I can relate it back to the LGBT community and the Black um, community intersectionally, um, in regard to like mass incarceration, the Black men historically just have been um, kind of like deviate or separated from that sense of like identity and that sense of um, being like a leader and like a dominant force in their family. Um, and, you know, that kind of like basically trickles down into like the hypermasculation um, or hypermasculinity that basically is embedded into like black culture. And I think um, when it comes to black communities that are, you know, poor and that are in um, destitute areas, like you have like that hood culture that kind of, um, perpetuates hypermasculinity because they feel the need to overassert themselves um coming from an infrastructure in which they were they had no control of their bodies um you know like their direction in regard to the lgbtq community i feel as though having suffered years of ostracization and being told that they aren't men enough um because of their queerness um you often have these characters in the community that feel the need to um indulge in like hypersexual activity um, and also look down on other men that don't perpetuate this ideal of a masculine alpha male. Um, so right. there's a lot of like phobia that um, occurs in our microcosm. That, that's a great point. You use that, that word alpha male. Um, and there's so much of, of masculine behavior, which, which kind of promotes that at times. And there's that, that cliche almost that expression of, of men being a, a lone wolf, you know, just, uh, you know, being stoic, um, being strong and handling it themselves. 
Um, and I want to put this next question over, over to Brady here for a moment. You know, what's the problem with men being stoic? What's the problem with, with men showing emotion and taking it all on themselves? So I think what the problem is, is that being a man and showing emotion, you're seen as weak. You're seen as not being a man. You're seen as uh, feminine, almost, almost less than what you are, which is, you know, I'm, I'm a man. And basically it's as, as showing uh, that emotion uh, that automatically means that I'm uh, le- uh, lesser than that. And I think where I've had the biggest problem in my life with toxic masculinity would be actually in sports. Um, I have a, a great example of uh, my my senior year at uh, boarding school. I was a uh, captain of uh, varsity basketball, and uh, we had a uh, a midseason tournament where we were in the. Uh, basically the finals to, uh, to take home the trophy. And we were playing against a team that previously had, uh, kind of, kind of dominated us kind of, you know, they beat us, beat us by a lot, beat us by like 20 points, uh, prior to playing them earlier in the season. And, uh, there was a lot of pressure on me, um, during that game, just because, uh, you know, I, I was, I was team captain. I, you know, I averaged the most points, you know, uh, so on and so forth. Um, and during that game, um, Going into halftime, uh, we were up. Uh, my team was up by eight points. Uh, I was playing really well. Uh, it was probably probably my best game uh, of the whole entire season. Um, and essentially, the when the third quarter started, uh, about two minutes into the third quarter, I rolled my ankle uh, and I, I sprained it pretty bad. Uh, I definitely was was crying. I was crying my eyes out because of how much pain I was in. Uh, my, my teammates had to, uh, pick me up and carry me off the court. And essentially when that happened, my, uh, coach called the timeout and he came over to me and basically sat down next to me. And it was kind of the last thing I thought I was going to hear, uh, was basically him looking at me and saying, you know, uh, Brady, I, this is a huge game. You know, we can, we can win the trophy. You know, I need you to, I need you to man up. I I need you to man up. And he said that twice, like back to back, like, I need you to man up. Like, I need you to man up. Uh, and I don't think I understood at the time how significant that was, but kind of reflecting on it later on in life, I, uh, I realized what just how toxic that was and how demasculating it was for me. And, you know, the fact that, you know, I, I had my coach saying this to me, my teammates were, you know, like, yeah, Brady, like you got to man up. You got, you got to finish this. You got to do it, man. You got to do it. And, you know, I, I, I rolled my ankle like very bad. I could, I could barely stand up. I could barely put any weight on it. Uh, And in that moment, it was kind of like time, like froze and in my mind it was like I felt like I was in the middle of like a like a stadium and it was like there was this bright spotlight on me and it was like there was just this Im- immense amount of pressure for me to to quote unquote man up and 
you know, play through the pain and, you know, be a man. It's not, it's not a big deal. Like, you know, and, you know, like stop, stop showing weakness. And, you know, sadly I, uh, you know, I, I sort of came to the pressure and, you know, which was a big health risk on my part. I, you know, my, my, the trainer of my team gave me, you know, a couple of leaves. They, they wrapped up my ankle as best as they could. They, they put tape around, uh, well, they taped up uh, ice around the, the bandage around my ankle and I got back out there and, you know, tried to try to do what I could, which obviously wasn't much considering I couldn't even change direction anymore, which is a, you know, pretty important thing in, uh, in basketball. And, um, you know, that doing that and succumbing to that pressure, uh, affected me for the next year of my life. I, you know, I got, uh, an MRI of my ankle two days later and I found out that not only did I tear uh, uh, multiple tendons in my ankle, but I also had a hairline fracture in my ankle. So technically, theoretically, my ankle was broken. Um, and it it took about a year to uh, for my ankle to fully heal and uh, come back from that. And you know, still to this day, I deal with uh, you know with physical pain from it. And uh, you know, it's. It's obviously it's my fault. You know, I, I, I came to the pressure when I should have rose above the pressure and realized that my safety is more important than my ego and me feeling, quote unquote, like a man and acting like a man and, you know, manning up. Um, and that was a that was a pretty significant, uh, you know, moment for me. And I didn't really put two and two together until uh, a couple of years later. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that story. I mean, you, you bring up that word pressure and I can't imagine having an entire, you know, basketball court and arena, you know, cheering you on to, to go on. Um, and this is sadly some of fortunately the, the, the unattainable roles that people are expected to be placed in. Um, thank you again, for sharing that. Um, does anyone in the group have any uh, response on that? Yeah. Yes. Ben, go ahead. Um, so through my rugby experience in college, um, especially as captain, uh, I've faced a lot of similar situations to that. Um, but what stood out in kind of uh, contrast to Brady's story is that the, to me, it's, it's crazy how powerful that dynamic of trying to push through injury can be um, where a lot of times it doesn't even take the coach saying, you know, man up. I have, I've seen kids uh, come off the field very concussed and um, you know, they're trying to do whatever they can to convince the trainer to let them back on or a slew of injuries. And I uh, always try my best to tell them like to put the whole, what we're doing in perspective, especially at Southern where it's, I mean, we're a decent team, but it's a club sport. So, and I had to like really talk them down off that edge of like going back in the game when they clearly shouldn't. Um, so it doesn't even take a ton of external pressure um, for people to try to push through pain like that a lot of time. Um, and he, even I've done it myself um, a couple of times when I, in retrospect, it wasn't worth it at all. Um, but it's this is kind of systemic pressure that, gets drilled into 
young men's heads that um, <clears throat> if they uh, succumb to weakness or if they succumb to injury, um, especially in a pivotal moment, that um, they're somehow less than and they're not good enough because they're not indestructible, I guess. Um, Absolutely. And it, yeah, so the, the main thing that stuck out to me was that a lot of this is internalized too. It's not just, you know, a coach telling you it all the time. I want to share some of the um, information that we actually has collected as a class here regarding this. Um, we recently did a, an, an informal survey, uh, the communication capstone course um, about to basically gather opinions that people had on the perception of traits, whether um, emotional traits, whether they're framed as being more masculine or feminine. And sadly, the, the data suggests that uh, traits like emotional sensitivity, crying, those are traditional ma uh, fem feminine traits. And men are expected to be the opposite. They're supposed to, to promote physical strength, dominance, um, as well as anger. Anger is also was reported in our surveys being a more masculine strength. Um, does anyone else have any more further thoughts on, on how we're forced into, into these, these roles that we have there in terms of behavior and, and emotion? Sure. I just wanted to quickly add that um, I think a lot of people seem to think that these are traits that that start during adolescence and thereafter. Mm. But sociologists of gender have have started to show how actually not started to. They've been for a while just how early um, the, this kind of socialization kicks in. I mean, you're talking preschool and even before then. Mm -hmm. uh, where the boys will be boys refrain sets in. And so to speak to what they what the other uh, panelists just mentioned, like this idea that it's it's internalized, part of the reason it's internalized and it barely even requires any outside pressure by the time somebody reaches high school or thereafter is that they've been, you know, told that since they were two, three years old, that you're a boy, you don't cry, you don't, you know, boys don't do this and boys will be boys. And and so I think the harm is done so early that undoing it uh, is incredibly difficult because we often get there too late. That's a great point. Brady, yes, you had somebody want to say, also Sam, I'm sorry. Uh, Brady, go ahead, go first and then Sam. Yeah, so I just think that, uh, you know, we're put, we're put in these boxes. Mm -hmm. Um specifically by gender and those boxes say how we are supposed to act and how we're not supposed to act and you know i think i think that has a lot to do with it especially at, at an early at an early age you know I, I i mean as far back as i can remember even from you know friends family uh you know being told you know don't cry you know uh, you know, man up once again. I mean, I've, I've been hearing that my whole entire life, uh, you know, that you need, you need to man up, you need to, uh, you need to act tough. You need to be strong. Um, you know, and I think that these, these kind of these gender boxes that are out there that we're put into, uh, you know, I think it just it kind of takes a toll on society as a whole. So what do you have to say about that? I mean, how we're placed into a box. Um, in regards to the box, absolutely. Like, um, and then these boxes seem to be infinite. Like, wherever you go and whatever community that you um, enter, like, they're always going to be like even more boxes drawn to like. Um, yeah. 
just box people in even further and like deviate from like the idea of us all just being human beings having human experiences yeah um and, and i raised my hand earlier because i wanted to address a question um, absolutely dr um mama Ashwar, and it was in regard to the construct of like masculinity masculinity and femininity and whether or not that is made up because when i think about it like i feel like a society like we've directed like oh because women behaving this way this is feminine and then men behaving this way this is masculine but then like what about those like in between and then those like you know who just don't necessarily like fit in within the construct like is there any other terminology or is there yeah is there any other terminology that we can use that basically that um kind of creates the binary or separate i don't know i just i'm just so i recently stepped into like this inquiry about whether or not masculinity femininity is actually a real thing Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Uma, oh, yeah. I, I just wanted to make sure you were done. Um, yeah, I think sociologists have been questioning the binary for decades now. And I think that people, uh, at least in my corner of the world, really very much see them as social constructs that are what we make them to be. And and so in my own research, one of the things that I've been trying to draw attention to is is that masculinity, even in prison, where people think of incarcerated men as these really hyped up, super aggressive, stereotypically violent men, uh, what we're seeing emerge is hybrid masculinity. And and I really like the idea of hybrid masculinity because the argument is that um, it's kind of like a combination of traditionally masculine, so-called masculine and so-called feminine traits, except they kind of transform one another and create this this um, alternative way of being a man um, where emotional, you know, to speak to what you said, Jason, it's something like emotional expressiveness among the men I interviewed that was a marker of masculinity for them. And that's the side of masculinity that people aren't seeing so much. And so some of the, the things that we think we know about masculinity, the reason we think that is that we kind of impose on um, impose on our analyses, impose on our observations, our own biases, right? So we think that incarcerated men are hypermasculine. And so we didn't stop to wonder, how does emotional expressiveness fit into that, right? And so when you actually start to look at it on the ground, you see that men have really uh, deep, complex emotional identities and that the, this, this binary, this rift between masculinity and femininity I mean, it's really nonsensical. It doesn't mm. it doesn't really map onto any kind of social reality that that we know of. Mm. Um, yeah, it's more in our minds, right? It's more something that we've created than something that actually exists. That's a great point. And I know we did some further study as a class about um, other things that we thought uh, fit into perceived masculine, feminine uh, ideals. Um, one of those are occupations and roles. In fact, we did a, um, our research recently uh, found that, for example, um, stay-at-home parents, nurses, K-12 teachers, daycare providers, secretaries, and artists, those were traditionally perceived as feminine roles, while doctors, mechanics, scientists, engineers, mathematicians, firefighters, and the list could go on, they're perceived traditionally as masculine roles. And as as we break down, you know, those barriers of 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 gender within those roles, um, we're hit, we're experiencing some conflict there as well. Um, ben, do you do you see any of that? Like, how how does this change of gender really create conflict? Um. So I have some I'm trying to 
organize my thoughts here. It's okay. Um, I think that it's uh, the conflict of it comes for me isn't as much of an external conflict as a lot of people would think. Um, I think eventually it can lead to that um, if individuals aren't um, emotionally equipped to deal with their own internal conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, they can that can end up being them creating, you know, violence or whatever other conflict with those around them. Um, but for me, the way toxic masculinity and gender roles fits into that um, is if you say you don't adequately perform in your gender role, and then those around you criticize you for it, or even I've even people acknowledging that you, you know, um, for me at least didn't live up to this like masculine ideal at times um, can kind of really weigh on your conscience and um, make you question a lot about yourself. Um, So I feel that the the main conflict that first hits you is when uh, say, say um, around my house, for example, I'm expected to, um, I do a lot of like maintenance stuff and like put in light switches and uh, mess around with speakers and, Oh, like electronic and hardware and uh, like Candyman things that my dad taught me because he was a carpenter. Um, but at, I'm not trained to do any of that. I don't have any real experience working in that field. It's a lot of me just trying to figure it out. Um, and if I if I don't, then I I put all this pressure where I feel like I let my whole house down and I'm not you know I I didn't do this one thing that I should be able to do. Um, and then from there. Um, I mean, I typically don't, you know, I, I don't externalize that, but I could see how, um, different people responding to different stimulus like that. Um, mm-hmm. if you just get in that really negative headspace about yourself and then if, um, you're not used to being self-critical, um, then that can create a really cognitive like dissonance, um, from, from your own self-image. And that can, I could definitely see how that leads to an external conflict where now you're going out looking to make trouble for those around you because you feel as if they've attacked you somehow. When in reality, um, you've just kind of uh, gotten to in your own head about it. Yeah. So that, the presumption that, Hey, you're, you, you should be good at, you know, working around the house, you know, you're a guy, those are guys things, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but in reality, you know, it, you, you might have some insecurities on that or, or the pressure is just too great. I, I completely under, understand that. Uh, Sam, do you have anything you'd like to add on to that? Um, yes. Um, more specifically about the study in regards to like what is deemed masculine and feminine in the workplace. And yeah. whether or not, like, because now that I think about, like, the construct of masculinity and femininity, I think about how, like, it's those two entities are just a culmination of traits, right? So, like, when mm-hmm. you completely, like, remove those titles, you just have a bunch of traits that may or may not fit people. I think people and their personalities are um, also a culmination of traits. So, like... To name this masculine or feminine just doesn't make any sense because it's just like what like in, in regards to like the expectation of men um needing to be handy or like do work around the house like that's just somebody like, who's just handy you know that can be seen <laughs> um male male and female like, i have a female cousin like you know she this is actually this is actually a dynamic that she struggles with in her home sort of kind of her father is um my 
uncle, he's um is he a carpenter? He does a lot. He's a jack of all trades, right? And she kind of inherently like picked up that type of like handy type of I can't even come up with another adjective, but hand I'm gonna use handy. Sorry for being redundant. Um <laughs> she kind of picked up like that trait, right? So like when it comes to her installing a new living room set or like just doing little things around the house she does it but like she wants her man to do that yeah. um, or her husband to do that and but he's just not the type of person um and not that he's fem- um feminine or like or whatever but he just that's just that's, those are things that he doesn't like go towards like she kind of had to force that force him to work with her father to install their new floors right but these right. aren't things that like naturally that naturally attract him and i think that that's okay like but mm-hmm. and, but that that comes with her being comfortable in her stuff as a woman and wanting to do those things or liking to do those things um and being okay with her husband not liking to do those things yeah um, so i think it, it comes just it just boils down to people just being okay with like accepting people for who they are and not trying to just define everything like being that like we are these species who like who was like the most intellectual on this planet probably in this universe maybe i'm lying but like <laughs> we like to just find meaning for everything and i think people just need to let things just be but it's hard because we um communication we do we love to label those things and, and categorize things um but you make a great point you know these things are arbitrary you know these roles are, are arbitrary but you just made up a, a great point how a lot of it is the socialization and how you were raised if you're raised with a house of a handyman and you're a girl you could absolutely be a handyman you know you have some of those skill sets that you were raised with you know um some of that pre some of that that knowledge that was instilled to you yeah go ahead ben um, I just wanted to add on to that, that I think this really speaks to part of, um, for this masculinity redefined project, part of our, um, when we laid out our goals and everything was that how this affects everyone, like how toxic masculinity is a thing that isn't just dangerous for men, it, it affects all of our society, where now you have, you know, women who can feel less, less of themselves or less of a woman or whatever, um, because now they're interested in something that's typically masculine mm-hmm. where if you kind of start to deconstruct those roles everyone can feel a little more um comfortable just liking what they like and it doesn't matter whether that's perceived as masculine or feminine it's just what you like and you should be able to feel comfortable liking things right which is like such a simple thing to say out loud but like this is not the reality for a lot of people right right Dr. Umama Hishwar, I, I know you, you you mentioned earlier you have you have a couple twins that that'll interrupt your the conversation there. Um, we had a couple of conversations in our class as well about parenting um, children now that we're in our social distancing. Uh, is there a, a change in roles there or the roles being reinforced or is is your house non-traditional? What is there a conflict going on? So we were, um, I was actually talking to some people on uh, social media about this, about how an equitable gender division of, of household labor requires this like magical combination of being really obsessive and being really lucky. And so for us, we're fortunate. Uh, my husband is also a professor, so we have the same jobs. Um, our schedules are not crammed in the same way. And so it's worked for us. Uh, but I think that's because, you know, we are hyper conscious about it, but also because 
um, we, we just locked out, right? But but households across the country, are, and, and you know, we're already seeing the effect. So I think just in my own world of academia, um, there are journals that are uh, indicating a decline in uh, submissions, in article submissions from women scholars. And everyone is saying, oh, you know, we saw this a mile away, but it's still really upsetting once you see it happen because it's the feminization of uh, of care, right? So uh, right. when push comes to shove, even so-called progressive, gender progressive couples uh, end up in the in this very stereotypical division of labor where the the husband's work, the man's work is prioritized over the woman's. And so if you have children and you're in a heterosexual marriage, statistically speaking, it's the woman's job that's going to take the hit. Um, and it's really it's unfortunate because this is part of uh, what we're what we've noticed in in the last decade or so is that the so-called revolution, the gender revolution, it's really stalled. It's become a stalled revolution where uh, women have entered the men's world by becoming more engaged in employment and the public sphere, but men have not entered women's worlds. They are not taking over, um, you know, the cooking and the cleaning and. Uh, the the changing of diapers. There's and when it happens, you know, everyone really screams from the rooftops about it. But it's not happening enough to change any kind of traditional gender dynamic. And women are being harmed by that, and men are as well because they're they're not getting a, the chance to explore that facet of their identities. Is there a little bit of hope now that both men and women um, are home during our social isolation? I mean, I, I, I don't like to sound pessimistic, but we are seeing it play out the way we would imagine it would play out, uh, um, which is not optimistic. Right. Uh, I think if there were enough push, if there were enough pushback, if, uh, if there were enough awareness about it, I think this would be a ripe time to kind of implement mm -hmm. that kind of change. Uh, but I think so many people don't even realize they're in that dynamic because so it's so normal. Right. So if you're, I mean, if you're, if you're and are listening to our social media feeds right now, if you're, if you're a dad and you're parenting right now in our social isolation, you're proud of it, you know, definitely, you know, tweet us, share us, you know, let it be known. Cause you know, this is, this is important that, 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 that men are representative as, as parents now more than ever. <laughs> yeah. um, I have a question actually about, um, specifically what you were just talking about uh, when you said that um, you're seeing the data showing with women scholars putting forward less um, submissions and everything. Um, is that across the board? I don't know if you have the information on this. Um, like, I, I, do you think that that same thing is happening across the world or is that more um, prominent in cultures like the United States, which is a hyper-masculine uh, culture? Um, is it, or are there other places where there's less of a gender divide and you're seeing it's not as stark of a contrast? Yeah, so the data that we're seeing are rapidly emerging, right? Like this is just, and it's very informal right now. It's just mm. editors of journals who are tweeting about seeing rapid uh, falls in, in submissions from women's mm. scholars. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that it will be worse here in the U.S., uh, partly because it's um, it's a culture that, you know, has not made as much progress on the gender front as some some others. Uh, but partly because um, parenting here in, in, in America is really hard. Uh, there's there's not much support for the family here. And so there, there, in, in other cultures, this, this mentality of it takes a village, they really embody that. They really live that. Where the state supports them, there's a lot of familial support. There's a lot of 
professional support. Um, here, I think what the what COVID nineteen has really exposed is just how fragile our uh, our system is, where it's it's almost impossible to do what people are asking parents to do right now. Um, you know, if you have a two a two partner, two working partner household, and you have children as well, I mean, you're on call twenty four seven. Right. If you're you're engaged in some form of domestic or professional labor from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to sleep and sometimes thereafter as well. Uh, and I think that some support for that, some recognition of that should have come earlier. And, in, and I think in other countries there was there's just more support for that. There's more awareness of it. And so there's heightened sensitivity to that. Um, where, whereas over here, I think what a lot of people are dealing with is just that we have been called to action on the parenting front. Uh, but there hasn't been uh, a simultaneous recognition on the work front that this is what parents are are encountering. And again, women are the ones who bear the brunt of that because women are the ones who bear the brunt of household labor. So sort of to, even though both men and women are experiencing this, um, you know, men's jobs are less touched by it uh, than women's. And I expect I suspect that more the other more gender progressive cultures aren't seeing quite as radical a shift. But the, the, the journal data are really preliminary right now. Right. So we'll have to wait and see. This concludes then our live video podcast of Masculinity Redefined, A Lone Wolf. Um, I'd like to thank our guest speakers, um, Dr. Umama Heshwar, Brady Agovino, Ben Kroll, Sammy J. Uh, of course, I'd like to thank all of our followers on the internet um, who I hope are social distancing and staying safe um, and trying to alleviate the stress during these difficult times. Um, I've been your host, Jason Karubia, and I please encourage everyone to continue the discussion um, with people that you meet. Also visit our website, www.masculinityredefined.info. Uh, follow our social media accounts on Instagram and Twitter. Again, that's at SESU underscore CMS. We do have a TikTok uh, account as well. Um, that's at Masculinity Redefined, and defined is D-E-F-I-N-D. Um, please follow those social media accounts, continue that conversation with us. We look forward to seeing you there. Thank you again, everyone, uh, and be well. Thank you for listening to Masculinity Redefined. Our producers were Kay Michelle, Jason Carubia, John Zabi, Jacob Miko. Music by Ben Kroll. This podcast was recorded at Southern Connecticut State University. For more information, check out our website at www dot masculinity redefined dot info